I'm really pleased to be here and I look forward to the discussion. And I was also um, delighted to see that you heard last week from my colleague, David Dysenhaus. It's a bit of a coincidence, I guess, that you have back-to-back -back, uh, University of Toronto presentations. Um, he and I, and I don't know, he might have mentioned this actually, co-taught a course last fall in Toronto on the international rule of law theories and practice. And we had a running joke that he was taking the students on a journey into what he, he called the glacial uplands of theory, whereas I was trying to get everybody's heart rates down by showing them that theories and practice are intertwined and that theories uh, are inherently practical. And so, in fact, my own work um, seeks to articulate a practice-based theory of international law. That's the interactional law that um, already was referred to, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, and I'm delighted to have this opportunity today to introduce you to this um, way of thinking about international law. Now, I understand that the audience for these sessions includes a good number of law students and graduate students. So I want to begin in a somewhat unusual way and tell you a little bit about how I came to develop this perspective on international law that I hold today. And I can say, little did I know when I started out and I was reminded of this very vividly um, a couple of weeks ago when the Max Planck Institute's um, journal Zeitschrift für Ausländisches Öffentlichliches Recht und Völkerrecht, the Heidelberg Journal of International Law, has a Twitter series called From the Archives. And they tweeted um, my very first law review article, <laughs> which dates back, I'm scared to think, to 1989. And in that article, I tried to grapple with common interests in international environmental law. Now, that's still something I'm interested in, but I'm when I, if I were to read this article today, I imagine that I probably wouldn't be in complete agreement with myself in terms of the um, the, the perspective um, on international law that was underpinning my work then. And so this kind so what I want to do is um, rather than throw you into interactional law at the deep end is to talk a little bit about this evolution in my thinking and in my theoretical perspective because it explains, I think, um, uh, what animates um, the ideas that animate this approach. And that's also an interesting exercise for me, it turns out, because it's a good reminder that you never stop learning. I mean, this is kind of something people often say, but I can say that there have been a few junctures um, along the way where new insights set me on a new track or prompted me to shift or refine my focus. And um, uh, the, the origin point for my journey is as um, the name of the journal that I mentioned a moment ago might suggest in Germany. So I'm a civil law trained um, lawyer. And uh, when I went to law school, for me, law was codified. It was found in the text and courts applied it. And so did other participants in the legal system. That's of course a you know, a caricature, but that was more or less my vantage point. So I was firmly anchored in the continental positivist tradition. I didn't question it because that was all that I had encountered at that point. And German law school certainly at that time didn't really teach um, anything else. So what happened to me? 
Well, um, the, the piece that I'm, or the work that I'm talking um, about today will make clear that that's not really the full picture of how I think about law today. And um, it underscores for me having sort of reflecting back that, as I said, this it underscores this lifelong uh, learning proposition that I just mentioned, that you always encounter new horizons, ideas, approaches. My first full-time teaching position in Canada was at McGill University, and that is actually where I met and started working with Stephen Toop, whom, uh, uh, whom you mentioned uh, earlier in the introduction. And he's now, um, you know, things kind of come around and go around. He's now the vice chancellor at Cambridge University, where he studied international law. So he went back to Canada, and now he's back in England, where, where he became an international lawyer. Um, the other thing that, that happens oftentimes is that not everything is planned. Sometimes progress in your thinking begins with opportunistic behavior, and that was actually where we started. We were alerted at the time to a federal grant program that was called the Cooperative Security Program. It was a program run by the then Department of Foreign Affairs, and it wanted to get people thinking in new ways about security. And so we sat down together and quite literally um, started to think up a project that fit within the program and that was interesting to us. I came from international environmental law, Stephen Toop came, uh, had worked on dispute settlement. And so we focused on what was then a, a new concept of environmental security and deployed it to think about the role of international law and dispute avoidance in the context of shared water resources. And it's through that project that we began to read international relations literature because much of the environmental security literature was anchored there. And the same actually, when you think about literature, early literature about environmental regime building, it tended to be um, anchored in IR theory, um, which gained and, and regime, uh, regime theory strand of IR theory that gained prominence in the 1980s. Famously, Stephen Krasner, um, suggested that a regime was, and I quote, a set of explicit or implicit principles, norms, rules, and decision-making procedures around which act actor expectations converge in a given issue area. Now, why were we interested in this approach? Because it seemed to suggest that say a treaty, a freshwater agreement, wasn't just a piece of paper. So you can see here, I'm already moving from my German civilian perspective on what, uh, where we find law, but that one might think about it as a context in which opposing viewpoints might converge or might be coordinated. But regime theorists weren't really so much interested in whether norms were law or not. And so as appealing as this framework initially seemed to us, we also came to realize that it was ultimately embedded in then dominant rationalist, realist perspectives uh, in IR scholarship. So what does that mean? I presume that most of you will know what that means, but just, you know, again, by way of uh, somewhat of a caricature. So the premise here is that state conduct is shaped by states' interests and their relative power, that international law ultimately follows state interests and power, and that international law maybe can be useful to fix up an agreement, an arrangement to firm it up, an agreement that states have already arrived at. And so that is to stabilize that agreement, right? To come to the topic that, um, that I will focus on as we proceed. But since interests and power determine conduct, little attention in this literature was being paid to what it means to say that international law is binding. 
other than maybe that that is a way to say it has the formal status of being law, typically a treaty. Um, and it would, I guess, in this view, if you take this rationalist realist perspective, it would also matter because it affects interest calculations if international law could be enforced. But since that's not the norm, at least not in the domestic law sense of centralized enforcement, I, international law in this literature tended to be seen as weak. There wasn't any exploration of whether law can influence conduct due to its quality of being law or what even distinguished legal norms from the other kinds of norms in the, in the set of principles, norms, decision-making procedures, and so on that, that I refer to. And so I would also say, though, that what struck us was that lawyers were very much influenced by this dominant rationalist realist worldview in turn. That is, they tended to see oftentimes international law as weak, unstable, oftentimes because not, it wasn't backed by, backed by centralized sanctions as per, say, the domestic law model. So it always struck us that there's a sort of mutually reinforcing positivism, rationalism, um, something at work. And, and it's powerful because these perspectives tend to be taken for granted. They don't have to be defended. Um, they tend to be taken, so interests matter, power matters, that takes tends to be taken as the way the world works, as opposed to one way to think about how it does. And I'll come back to that. So I'm not saying that that's wrong, although that would be silly to say that obviously is part of how the world works, but it always struck us, it, it sort of under explored what the role of law might be in all of this. So um, methodologically speaking, what this, what, what this actually suggested to us was that there, one of the benefits of interdisciplinary work is that it can make us see the same issue or phenomenon that you, we've looked at from a new angle. And in the case of international relations theory, the benefit to us was that lawyers tend to take for granted that law is relevant, but IR theorists did not or probably do not. And they ask, does law matter, right? But here also, when I use that phrase, does law matter, you come to one of the potential pitfalls of interdisciplinary efforts. And that is if, if one simply appropriates parts of what the other discipline does, because when IR theorists asked whether law matters, what they're really asking is whether it has a causal effect. Is it effective? And so that is a metric and methodologist, a methodology that is mainstream in rationalist IR theory. But are those the right questions for lawyers? And so they can be. In fact, at my own faculty, a lot of colleagues um, are interested in quantitative methods and law, law and economics thinking and so on. Um, but the point to underscore, I guess, is um, for those of you who are working in an interdisciplinary vein or are thinking of doing that is that it's really important to immerse yourself in the other discipline so that you know the nuances and importantly the assumptions that underpin it. Well, so here comes the next track setting moment. This is almost sort of idyllic, um, you know, academic fantasy. Stephen Took was on sabbatical in France and I at the time still lived in Germany. So I went to visit him. Um, in the countryside and we sat and read and he all of a sudden uh, looks up and says, Jutta, I think we're constructivists. And the rest, in a sense, is sort of history in terms of our work because um, 
we then started exploring a new branch of IR theory. Um, and from this encounter with constructivism emerged the interactional approach to international law that um, was referred to inter in the introduction. And that really anchors um, pretty much all of my, my work today. Um, and this interactional framework was developed over a period of some 25 years. So progressively, we got to the place in which we are now, and it continues to be, and that's in some ways the most exciting part, a work in progress, because we continue to enrich it with new insights, oftentimes from events like this, where a question comes that prompts us to say, oh, yeah, we hadn't thought of that, or, you know, that's something worth pursuing. So we, we refine, we improve, we like to think, and the most recent um, such refinement and eureka moment came when we shifted our focus from IR constructivism proper to practice theory. Um, and that was a gradual process that was influenced significantly by the work of a leading constructivist IR scholar, um, also at the University of Toronto, or was at the University of Toronto uh, until retirement, Emmanuel Adler. So I'll come back to this framework. But so what this um, um, uh, project that I'm uh, now turning to tries to explore is how international law mediates between stability of the law and change in the law. So the project isn't concerned with whether law can stabilize or change the world, because that's not what we are focused on or try to engage in. That's the methodological point that I made earlier. So this is not a causal inquiry. Um, and the, the assumption is that the standard account of uh, standard accounts of international law come with a set of assumptions. Um, and so here again, the point that I want to make is the theory shapes what you see or shapes what you assume. So in IR, again, the rationalist realist theories assume that interests drive behavior, that power allows some states to shape the world according to the interests and so on. And that means law is stable as long as it accords with the interests of powerful states and it will change when their interests change. And as I said, that view is often taken for fact and it is probably not entirely or most certainly not entirely inaccurate, but maybe not the whole story. Because we don't always say, how do I get what I want? But we also often say, what should I do in this situation? Right? And so that's the logic of consequences, a rationalist logic versus a logic of appropriateness, which is a constructivist logic. And the intuition that rationalism is too narrow um, so that thinking about law isn't just about interests, but also norms, and that law isn't just a feather in the wind of competing interests and power, that's what nudged Stephen Toop and I to look at constructivism. And inherent in constructivism is the idea actually that norms matter, that they do shape actors thinking of what they should be doing. So put differently, through social interaction, actors develop certain shared understandings, norms that will then in turn shape their interactions going forward. So norms an actor, interests and conduct are mutually constructed, hence constructivism. But we also found that even constructivists were not all the way there. They were exploring norm cycles and emphasizing the social construction of norms. But when a norm became law, all of a sudden it was something different altogether. It was a fixed standard, typically the focus in this work also on treaties. 
which against which we can now measure behavior, right? So now we can see whether that norm shapes behavior. And that assumption again, and so there's again, strangely when it comes to law, often an assumption of stability then. And again, that takes you back to positivist thinking. Um, law is hierarchical in position of authority. It flows from certain sources. And because international law isn't like that, and has little in the way of centralized enforcement mechanisms. Again, the idea that it, it is bound to be weaker, that it is bound to have to yield when it bumps up against interests in power. So whereas law is associated with stability, international law is often associated, associated with fluctuation, instability, weakness, for some of the reasons that I've just mentioned. And, um, that's, I think, why positivist international law is often preoccupied with stabilizing law via sources, notions like validity or crystallization of custom, as a sidebar, I, another recent eureka moment I had based on the theory I'm about to present is that law doesn't, custom doesn't crystallize, it gels, but I'll come back to that. Use Kogan's constitutionalization, all of these are stabilization products. And I'm not saying that these are bad or wrong, right? But I think there's, that's the intuition behind them. But our, our intuition was that, that may be looking for stability in the wrong places because text alone doesn't make law stable. Although, text of course does play a role and I'm happy to expand on that in the discussion if only become, because it becomes a reference point for subsequent um, argumentation. So our interactional account led us to a different way of thinking about stability and change. And here now I will try and what we tested earlier and share my screen and give you a one slide synopsis of the account, which will no doubt immediately initially puzzle you, but I hope it helps explain um, what I'm driving at. So let me just pull up the right screen here and share this and let's go. Here we go. Um, so I assume everybody can see that. So the basic premises of this account are, um, and I'll walk you through it, so don't be confused by all the loops and arrows and things. Um, um, Stephen Toop and I, by the way, are very proud of this, if only because we mastered how to make these things happen on, that is not really our forte, but... Um, so legal norms have to be grounded in and resonate with shared understandings or social norms in society. That is the purple bubble on the right there. And that is the constructivist input uh, into this way of thinking about international law. And I'll come back to why that matters. But then we want to say, we're not just IR scholars, we're legal scholars. So we want to say, how do we distinguish legal norms from other norms. And our argument is that the distinction comes from certain requirements or markers of legality. And so you see that in the middle, the blue area is what we would say is law, which is connected to the world around it, but also is distinctive from it. And these markers of legality we suggest are things like generality, promulgation, non-retroactivity, clarity, non-contradiction, reasonableness, constancy over time, and congruence between law and practice. I'll come back to this um, as well. So the argument that we make is that it's not, law doesn't primarily come from sources, although sources are significant in ensuring 
for example, that these requirements or markers of legality are met, promulgation, clarity, and so on, right? So there is a connection. Um, so in some ways you might think of sources as a sort of shorthand for a lawmaking process that operates according to certain parameters, parameters that are generated and maintained, I would suggest also by social practice. Now, where do these parameters come from? We've drawn them from an American legal theorist, um, Lon Fuller, but we don't posit them. We don't simply say they're right because Fuller asserted them. We argue that these requirements of legality actually are also a relatively stable, but nonetheless socially constructed background knowledge that constitutes the practice of law. You might say maybe even any law. Now, um, Fuller's work is prominent for the Hart-Fuller debate, and it's an in, also an influential catalog of what you might describe as rule of law requirements. And that's useful, of course, but we were drawn to this work not just because this is a handy and influential list, but because of his insight into the essential horizontality of law. So the, the intriguing thing to us was here's a domestic law theory who theorist who says law is horizontal, even when it seems to be hierarchical. And that, of course, for an international lawyer who's constantly trying to argue against, oh, we have a horizontal legal system and it's weaker than a hierarchical legal system, you know, that's an intriguing insight. If that is true, then maybe international law isn't um, that difference. Now, what did he mean when he spoke about the horizontality of law? He suggested that this idea that there needs to be congruence between rules and official action encapsulates the idea that there is a reciprocity among the participants in the legal system, such that in Fuller's case, citizens, and I quote, will accept law and generally observe the promulgated norms when they meet and are, and here I end the quote, and are applied in accordance with the requirements of legality. So the idea is that a lawgiver actually has to make law according to these requirements if the citizens are going to be influenced and um, have fidelity to the law, so to speak. And in international law, I would say that that is true at, a, at an obviously horizontal level among all the participants in the international um, legal system. So it, it highlights that for us, though, another central element, and that is what I described at the bottom bubble there as practices of legality. So for something to be a legal norm, it has to meet these requirements of legality, or at least most or many of them, but that's not enough. This is not just a checklist that you can say, check, 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 now we have law, but the practices that apply law, interpret it, enforce it, justify, argue, they also have to adhere to these requirements of legality. So, and that is what these loops are supposed to suggest. This is a practice-based account. Um, um, that, uh, that shows that law, um, in a sense, has to be maintained um, through what we, so when, where Fuller speaks of congruence, we speak of practices of legality to emphasize this point. So that underscores that legality and international law is a collective enterprise, it's a practice. And that means that, or this matters, we suggest for individual norms. So individual norms have to be treated like legal norms, applied in accordance with these requirements of legality to remain legal norms. 
but it also applies to international law writ large. The parameters that enable legal interaction have to be upheld through practices of the participants in the system. And that's why I mentioned earlier that these requirements of legality were not just taking from Fuller, but we suggest we can actually see them operating in practice and they have to be maintained in practice. And they have been as the sort of background requirements that we don't typically question and don't think about, they have been relatively stable. And that's again where practice theory has been helpful to us because a common challenge that we've received over the years to our account is, well, if you're a constructivist, how come you can claim that these requirements of legality just exist when they also have to be socially constructed and so fluctuate? And so our answer is yes, but so they are a practice, but they are a stable practice that operates in the background that is taken for granted. It can change, but it's a something that it's harder to change and it changes rarely. So actors might argue about particular norms, but they do that on the basis of these agreed criteria, right? So while you argue about a specific norm, whether it's law or not, or this or that, you do it in accordance with these requirements of legality, thereby upholding the idea of legality overall. Um, and so, what we would say then is while these requirements of legality that been, have been highlighted by you know, multiple legal theorists as elements of the rule of law, they're not just abstract philosophical notions. They, are, they can be shown to have been generated and maintained through practice. They have been uh, luckily relatively resilient. Um, and so what this all boils down to is that the stability of particular norms and the legal system at large is dynamic and contingent on practice. So this sounds counterintuitive, right? But the proposition of practice theory is that stability is actually dynamic. It has to be maintained, not by something that is just in print, but by practices of participants in the system. And so what this account highlights is that both stability and change are dynamic. And when you think about it, it's really not that counterintuitive, right? And so our hypothesis then in all of this is that the requirements of legality, and here I get to what is distinctive about stability and change in law, we, we think that these requirements of legality pull towards stability. And so that they in large part account for stability the stability that one tends to associate with law. And it's a distinctive kind of stability for norms to remain or become law, change needs to happen in a certain way that would still meet these requirements. And we would go as far as saying that these requirements also guide change and moderate the impulse for change and maybe make it harder or possibly even impossible for some norms to become law in the, in, in the interactional sense. And I'm happy to expand on this um, in the, in the Q&A. So that doesn't mean that there could not or should not be change, far from it. What this framework actually suggests is that, and here we come to the red um, bubble on the left, that changes in material circumstances or back to the bubble on the right, uh, changes in social understandings, they may exert pressure for legal change, right? So when the norms that exist become radically um, incompatible with what the common understanding in society is, that doesn't 
immediately change the law, but it will put pressure on the law because it might anymore be reasonable, it might no longer be practiced or whatever it is. And the same is true for changes in material circumstances. Um, when um, let's say you have the emergence of a new phenomenon like global terror networks or more recently the pandemic, right? So this might suggest, whoa, we need to change something in the law um, and exert pressure. It doesn't automatically equal law because what I suggest there through these arrows going left and right between the, the two items, material circumstances and shared understandings is that the law also pushes back to some extent, right? And in turn, material circumstances might affect, changes in material circumstances might affect our shared social norms, right? At the same time, the shared social norms might affect how we think about the material circumstances, right? So this is, um, in ultimately, um, there is interplay between all of these elements. Um, and um, what we, what our hunch is, is that, and for law, legal change to occur, changes in norms have to occur while the larger practice of law is maintained. And, um, and I might go as far as to, as to say that um, uh, changes in law are more likely if they entail norms that meet these requirements of legality. So let me say a few more things in closing. Um, I'm, I have been concerned for the last few years since, uh, I guess, you know, Brexit and the election of Donald Trump and all of the events that we're very uh, familiar with, with what has been happening in the world and how um, states and others have dealt with international law. And the concern is in part also explained by this framework because if you assume that the existence of international legality is ultimately a matter of practice, um, then you know when you observe that more and more actors push for norms that would no longer be legal norms in any meaningful sense. Um, and I've written about this in the context on the law of self-defense and uh, there the proposition has been that the unwilling or unable standard that has been advocated by some is arguably not something that really maps on very well onto these requirements of, of legality. And there are other examples. Or when actors dispense with efforts of legal justification altogether. And that has happened, that happened certainly a lot more frequently as well. Um, and it's, I think it is connected in some sense to this, what you might call authoritarian populism because populism or that brand of populism pushes against constraints of legality, doesn't bother with niceties like legal reasoning or legal justification, but focuses on the desired result, right? So if you look at um, this, slide that I have here, you can see that changes in material circumstances might cause individual norms to fade or change. And I use cause with caution because again, that's not necessarily the project here, it's simply to acknowledge that, that there is this connection between what happens in the world and law. But the most worrisome change to me is actually when actors um, no longer treat norms like legal norms when they when they do not engage in this practice of legality anymore, because then you might get to what I've called a relatively stable background practice becoming weakened and um, you see the overall system uh, collapsing. 
So um, last few comments that I want to make um, is that uh, we, um, we are, so our hunch is, and we've worked this out in a paper. So what I've, what I've given you here as a rough outline is something that's been published in the um, Victoria Wellington Journal of, of Law um, as a sort of basic overview on this account. And what we suggest there is that these requirements of legality underpin, in our view, all of international law, but you can trace them very concretely in, in treaty law, where I would suggest that virtually all of the rules, for example, of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaty map onto one or more of these requirements and promote them and, um, and help, in a sense, stabilize uh, uh, treaty law. Um, in custom, the calibration might be slightly different because um, uh, I would say here it becomes very obvious that the, both the parameters of the practice and the rules it instantiates remain in place only when they are maintained by participants in the system or else they shift or decay. But that's this account that I've given you now explains what I said earlier that um, when I was asked to comment on a colleague's work on uh, custom as practice and custom not as rule book, Monica Hakimi, um, um, that was this moment where I thought, hmm, so the, the metaphor that is one of the favorite metaphors of international lawyers that custom crystallizes, not totally wrong, but kind of wrong, right? Because crystallize means that it's now basically, I don't know, solid, right? And literally rock solid. Whereas what, what I, custom actually turns out interestingly to be remarkably stable, but it's stable because it's maintained by practice. And so my sense is it might be better, even if not quite as satisfying to say that custom gels and is um, in, in place for a good amount of time. Um, we've applied this in different settings in the climate change regime, as I said, in the rule of self-defense uh, against non-state actors and in the context of the course that I referred to at the beginning on the international rule of law, we've also applied it to or I have applied it um, to international rule of law thinking and sort of what's going on in the world. Uh, but um, so there's, I guess, let me just leave it here. I will un unshare the screen and I look forward to any questions and observations you may have. <laughs>